This is the One Soldier Canada History Podcast, Episode 5, The Canadian Civil War, Alberta vs. BC. During the afternoon of June 30th, 2022, Alberta Free State Forces made the final preparations for the invasion of the People's Republic of BC. Mechanized units moved to their assault positions, local commanders studied their targets, and the taps controlling the oil flow to the lower mainland were turned off. Then, on the morning of July 1st, Albertan forces crossed the BC border east of Grand Prairie. At 7am, mounted Albertan militia pushed aside the frontier barriers, allowing mobile infantry to race forward. Within two hours, the border towns of Dawson Creek and Fort St. John had fallen. By nightfall, lead elements of Alberta's Army Group North entered the strategic city of Prince George. The lightning speed of the Albertan advance caught the People's Republic of BC off guard, and they hastily began rushing forces to shore up their northern flank. This podcast tells the story of what happened before and after these pivotal events. Most wars go by more than one name depending on which side of the conflict you're on. I mean, if you're on one side of the Atlantic, you may read in school about the American Revolution. But if you're on the other, it's the American War of Independence. Same with the Seven Years' War, or is it the French and Indian War? It gets confusing sometimes. Now, if you're on one side of the Mason-Dixon line, it's the War of Northern Aggression, and on the other, it's the War of the Rebellion. Even World War II, that most universal of all wars, lacks a global standard of identification. Because if you're in Russia, you're going to refer to Stalingrad and Kursk as battles that took place in the Great Patriotic War, which, by the way, started in 1941, not 1939. And sometimes this alternating nomenclature isn't just a result of belligerence inhabiting different geographical spaces, but is instead a matter of changing times and perspectives. And like all of these wars, the one we're going to look at today also goes by a few different names depending on what side of the Rocky Mountains you reside in. Because if you're on the eastern side of the range, in the newly minted free state of Alberta, you're going to refer to this conflict as the Great Energy War. And on the other side of those mountain peaks, the environmentally conscientious citizens of the People's Republic of BC, they're going to know this war as the war for the climate. Across the rest of the nation, what is left of Canada, and even south of the border, People are simply going to call this the oil war. And so for the sake of neutrality, I'm going to stake out this middle ground and call the conflict by that term. And I know already before getting too far into this that we're going to get into some trouble for this podcast in some quarters. But I'm going to forge ahead anyways. And I hope you join with me on this expose into what would happen in a literal war between Alberta and British Columbia, a Canadian civil war in the West. Brother against brother, oil workers against tree huggers, 
cowboys riding towards fleets of electric cars, small C conservatives against a progressive coalition, Tim Hortons double doubles against fair trade organic coffee. And I'm going to say now that this podcast, it is meant to be a little humorous. It's meant to be somewhat serious, but most of all, it's meant to make you think. Because if you haven't thought about what would happen in the event of Alberta going it alone, then you haven't been paying attention to your own country. If you live in Alberta or Saskatchewan, you know that talk of separatism is on the lips of almost everyone. You can't go to a grocery store, the bank, the gym, the coffee shop, your kid's hockey game without hearing someone talking about politics and how Alberta's been kicked around by the rest of Canada. And maybe you're even the one initiating these discussions. But the point is that it's everywhere. And no doubt that comes as a surprise to many people living in Ontario and the East. And so will this. A poll done before the most recent election showed that nearly half of Albertans would consider separating from Canada. And if you're Albertan in November of 2019, you know that number is higher now that the election is over and Justin Trudeau has returned as Prime Minister. So the road I'd like to travel in this podcast is one where we ask ourselves, what would this look like? How would Alberta separating from Canada play out? Now we live in a modern 21st, a peaceful Western country. And I think because of that, we assume that any province separating, if it actually came down to it, would be a neat and organized affair. Something that's stamped and formalized by bureaucrats and lawyers. After all, that's what we're told would happen in Quebec if they ever decided to separate. But one look at history should give us warning that that is rarely the way things go. For every Czechoslovakian-style amicable divorce, there is a Bosnia or a Chechnya. What if Alberta separating from Canada wasn't so neat and tidy? What would a worst-case independent Alberta scenario look like. Now, I hate to ruin the mood, but a short disclaimer is needed at this point. I don't think we're here yet. Yet. But, if there is another election with a similar result, in other words, if the electoral map after the next election is once again a swath of liberal red in the east in Toronto and a patchwork of liberal NDP green in British Columbia, with a solid, impenetrable block of conservative blue in Alberta and Saskatchewan in between, then the historian in me says, maybe, maybe we're going to be there. So let's assume the next election happens and the result is the same as the one I just mentioned. And Wexit blows up. The simmering boil in Alberta and Saskatchewan starts to foam and... Not even the great personalities of Jason Kenney or Scott Moe can keep a lid on it. Although separatist sentiment runs high in Saskatchewan, the beating heart of Wexit is, and always has been, Alberta. And I think it's this province that's going to be the first to make a move. In the early months of 
2022, a referendum on independence is held and it passes with a clear majority. Soon after, the legislature declares the free state of Alberta and the wheels of succession start spinning faster. Now, what's the rest of Canada going to do in this situation? Well, in our scenario, Justin Trudeau isn't going to let the cash cow, the goose that lays the golden egg, just walk away from Confederation. And he's going to find a reason to not acknowledge the legitimacy of the Declaration of Independence. Maybe he's going to cite Alberta's failure to consult adequately with First Nations groups. Or perhaps he's going to cite Canada's global obligations to fight climate change. Or deem the question on the referendum ballot not sufficiently clear as the Clarity Act demands. In either event, the federal government passes its own bill that nullifies Alberta's quest for independence. And so now we enter the posturing phase of this conflict. It's now a game of high-stakes poker. Neither side backing down, yet at the same time, neither side wanting to fire the first shot either. This war starts off as a battle between politicians and news editors looking to sway public opinion. And of course, the Eastern elite opinion, the what's called the Laurentian consensus on such matters on, of Western separatism is going to be as you would expect. Dismissive. Mocking. And in no way in tune with the very real anger that Albertans feel towards the federal government. And so there's going to be editorials in Toronto and Montreal calling for unity with underlying threats of what might happen if Alberta pushes this thing to its logical conclusion. And in response to these, there's going to be great public rallies in city centres and Canadian flags taken down and replaced with the Albertan coat of arms on a blue background in the western cities. Keep in mind, Saskatchewan is at this point on a knife's edge on whether to throw in its lot with Alberta, and the other prairie province, Manitoba, is vowing to remain neutral in a coming conflict, not allowing federal forces from the east to cross its border, sort of like a Kentucky in 1861. But British Columbia is rabid at the turn of events. Because an independent Alberta geographically cuts off BC from the rest of Canada. Not only that, but the most fervent anti-Alberta, anti-oil sands voices emanate from that province. As they do today in 2019. It's the spawning ground of the Green Party and a bulwark of radical environmentalism. And it's on this Alberta-BC border where the fighting starts. Roadblocks go up on the major highways through the mountain passes between the Free State and what people are now calling the People's Republic of BC. Men by citizen groups and hastily cobbled together militia factions. One side begins taking pot shots at the other, and so it begins. This is how things fall apart, this is how wars start. So who would win in a literal war between Alberta and BC? How would this all play out if we're going to game this conflict out? I'm going to call this the mobilization phase of the war. Both sides are going to look at available manpower. 
Or if you're in the lower mainland of BC, you might refer to this as people power to be gender inclusive, but in either event, it's relatively even. Alberta's fighting age male population between the ages of 18 and 40 sits at about 800,000. Now, they're not all going to join the fight, but you can certainly field an army with those numbers. However, when it comes to raw numbers, BC has an edge over Alberta. A fighting male population of about 910,000 men. So in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively close, but if you're the war planners with BC, this is a good start. You got an extra 100,000 men. The biggest side in a war doesn't always win, but it never hurts either to have a numerical advantage. Not only that, but don't you think the war planners in the People's Republic of BC are going to push for a gender-neutral army with plans to conscript women into the ranks alongside men? This is something left-leaning jurisdictions do quite often. But I don't think the more conservative Alberta free state war planners are going to go down this road like BC does. And if you've read the book One Soldier, you'll know that left-leaning militaries often do exactly what, what BC is going to do in our situation. You can look at the Marxist PKK and YPG in Iraq and Syria as evidence of this. There were entire units of female fighters in the war against ISIS. Now let us also assume that both provinces are going to begin the war with the current units and supplies that are already stationed within its borders. After all, that's what usually happens in a civil war. The belligerents seize or loot government stores and weapons caches that are available. In the event of civil war, I think we can properly assume that the reserve units in these provinces, the personnel and the weapons are going to join their respective causes. And the reason for this is really simple. Reserve units are made up of citizen soldiers. These are local men who come from their communities that they're based out of. And they've got 9-to-5 jobs and they train on the weekends. So if support for separatism is, oh, I don't know, let's say 70% in Alberta, in the general population, then it's fair to say that separatism is going to run at at least that same percentage in the ranks of the reserve units, if not higher. And so once again, the numbers are quite close. Alberta is home to the 41st Brigade Group of reserves and has approximately 1,200 men in spread across 10 units. And the most battle-ready are probably going to be the two infantry regiments, the Calgary Highlanders and the Loyal Eddies. But there's also two armored recce units, an artillery regiment, combat engineers, etc. And now you might be doing some mental math in your head right now, thinking, wait a second, there's 1,200 men spread across 12 regiments. How does that make any sense? I mean, one regiment alone should be at least a 1,000 strong. Unless, of course, it's at the end of a, a bloody war where there's been casualties. And while that's true for the regular army, the reserve regiments are smaller by nature. Almost, think company-sized. And so if we look at an infantry reserve regiment, it will probably only have two effective platoons in it. But I digress, because we're going back over the mountains and finding out that once again, the People's Republic of BC has the edge in primary reservists. Remember I said Alberta has about 1,200 soldiers. 
Well, BC has about 1,500 scattered across various units in the 39th Brigade group, with concentrations in Vancouver, Victoria, Kamloops, and Prince George. Now, as with most civil wars, the oil wars in the West are going to see all sorts of ad hoc militia units springing up with their own commanders or warlords. And there's going to be a rather fluid chain of command. The effectiveness of the citizen soldiers is where Alberta displays a clear advantage over BC. Consider this. There are 262,000 hunting licenses sold annually in Alberta. In BC, a province with more people, there are only 97,000 hunting licenses sold. There are two and a half times the number of Alberta men who know how to handle a gun and know how to shoot. That is going to be an invaluable edge in a war between Alberta and BC. But despite the quantities of ad hoc militia units in the oil wars, it's the reserve units who are going to form the professional backbone of their respective armies. They're going to be like the Continental Line Regiments in the American Revolution or War of Independence, whatever you want to call it, that hold everything else together. So in that war, if the Americans are marching into battle, they'll have the Continental Line Infantry Regiments, the professionals in the middle, with the militia units on the flanks or maybe in front of skirmishers. But it's the Continentals that hold everything together. In our oil wars, it's the reserve units that hold everything together. It's the glue. Now, there are some wild cards in play that we have to take into consideration. For example, what happens to the PPCLI, the Princess Patricia Light Infantry, garrisoned in Edmonton? I mean, that regiment alone could probably brush aside the militia in either province. And then there is Four Wing at Cold Lake, with two operational squadrons of CF-18 fighter jets. And let's not forget the entire British army stationed in CFB Suffield in southern Alberta, which is the largest British army formation outside the United Kingdom. Now, either of these military assets could tip the scales in a big way. What Alberta would like most of all is to get their hands on the fighter jets at Cold Lake, but I think in the days and the weeks leading up to the independence referendum, I think these fighter jets are going to slip away on quote, training missions to different parts of the country, one at a time. All very coincidental, of course. And by the time war breaks out, the only fixed-wing aircraft remaining at Cold Lake are going to be antiquated. But maybe there's some training aircraft or some Griffin helicopters left over which could serve some useful purpose in the coming conflict. But the British Army in Suffield, they're going to probably remain neutral, and the PPCLI and Edmonton garrison... Well, I think the Albertans in the ranks are going to hive off maybe a company or two of strength, taking their weapons with them, and the rest of the regiment is going to remain in garrison, nominally under the control of Ottawa, but also deep inside the Free State's borders, and not sure quite what to do, sort of in a purgatory-like stance. So these are the pieces that can be moved around Ares' chessboard, and if you're the caddy to the Free State of Alberta's high command in a situation room somewhere in a downtown Calgary high-rise built by oil money, you might look at the campaign map and see that the overall situation at the outbreak of hostilities 
is not good. And it boils down to geography. The same thing that has blessed Alberta with oil and resources has also dealt Alberta a weak hand when it comes to defense. Because of breakaway Alberta Republic, it looks an awful lot like the various incarnations of the German state from all the way back from Frederick the Great to the Second World War. In other words, it's right in the middle of everything, surrounded. And if you've ever played a game of Risk, you know that that's the worst possible location to be in. You don't want to be in the middle. You want to be on the edge, on the flanks. So let's look at the color-coded electoral map again, the same map that started this conversation in the first place. Immediately to the east in Saskatchewan, Alberta's got a strong ally. It's Austria to Germany. Or Rohan to Gondor if you want to nerd out for a moment. But a little further east is the neutral province of Manitoba. So far, so good. But beyond that is the powerhouses of Ontario and Quebec with their vassals in Atlantic Canada, which has overwhelming manpower and resources. The eastern half of Canada is the existential long-term threat to the Alberta Free State. Yet with all that being said, the immediate threat to Alberta is a lot closer to home. It's to the west, across the mountains in B.C., In the oil wars, Alberta is essentially surrounded by hostile powers and in danger of prosecuting a two-front war, which it isn't going to be able to win. So how is Alberta going to react to this geographical predicament? Well, I think that once again, we can look to history and see how powers in similar situations sought to overcome the threat of a two-front war. And I think the best example we can use is Germany in the years leading up to 1914. You see, the German high command knew very well what a two-front war would do to their country. They had lived it before during the reign of Frederick the Great, when the Prussians had to contend with Russia, Austria, and France, all taking bites out of its flanks at the same time. And so the German high command, starting as far back as the 1890s, developed a plan that would give it a fighting chance in the event that A war with Russia and France had to be fought at the same time. And the plan, well, it's called the Schieflin Plan. It was hyper-meticulous, as only a German plan can be. And if you're interested in this at all, read the Guns of August. But the thumbnail sketch is that Germany would throw the bulk of its army at France, which they perceived to be the weaker of the two enemies. The goal was to defeat France quickly, and then transfer and reposition their forces back to the east to deal with the Russian juggernaut, which was, in their perception, the stronger of the two forces against them. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole history of World War I, other than than to say that the Schieflin plan, though it was remarkable in the sense that, against all the odds, they nearly won this thing. Yet the premise of the plan proved to be incorrect. Russia the largest of the armies arrayed against Germany was in fact the weakest enemy. And Germany was able to knock it out in 1917, while France remained standing with the help of its British and American allies. And the reason I bring this up is because the Alberta Free State is going to take a page out of the history books, and they're going to, in our war games, they're going to try to replicate the Schieflin Plan, which is codenamed Operation Klein in honor of the late and 
beloved premier of this province. In other words, Alberta's military planners are going to gamble on a strike-hard, strike-fast approach against B.C., in an attempt to eliminate the smaller threat on its western border, before then turning its attention towards the greater existential threat to the east. But hopefully by then, BC is conquered, and maybe Saskatchewan and perhaps even Manitoba has joined with Alberta to meet the greater threat. Now, taking a stab at BC first also makes a lot of sense, considering what the Alberta Free State objectives are. And it all boils down to market access for oil. Specifically, coastal pipeline access. It just so happens that BC has a lot of tidewater that Alberta needs to run its pipelines to in order to reach international markets. This central and northern BC coastline is going to be the real prize in the oil wars. There's going to be some significant challenges right from the beginning for Alberta besides being surrounded if they do take this aggressive posture. And chief amongst them is that the defender always has the advantage. They're dug in, hidden, using the land. They're heavy guns sighted and trained on choke points. They've got a plus one, to use a gaming analogy. The attacker, on the other hand, is vulnerable and exposed while covering ground. In the Canadian Army today, there is a doctrine that you need at least three times the number when assaulting a competent, entrenched enemy. And on top of that, if you look at the map of the Alberta-BC border, you can see there's only four entry points, four roads along the entire border that can get you from one province to the next over the mountains. On paper, it's a defender's dream, and these roads follow the natural mountain passes, which if you've ever driven the Crow's Nest or the Kicking Horse Pass, you know how rugged that terrain is. It's perfect for defense. And yet, for all this, BC isn't entirely off the hook either. Because this natural advantage for the defender, this plus one, if you will, is nullified if you don't know where the attack is going to come from. Because if you don't know, then you're forced to spread yourself thin in an attempt at defending everything. And in the process, you end up defending nothing. So will the brain trust in the People's Republic of BC know where the attack is coming from? Well, at the very worst, they've got a 1 in 4 chance of getting this right. Because like I said, there's only 4 roads across the mountains. Low intensity skirmishing takes place along all these border crossings in the opening days of the Great Oil Wars. Both sides begin feeling each other out looking for weaknesses in the lines in late June 2022. But if you're in the People's Republic of BC Situation Room in Vancouver, you've got to be thinking that the target of Alberta Free State Forces is Vancouver itself. It's the capital, after all. And every student of history knows that when you take the enemy's capital, the war's over. That's the rules of the game. And so if you're at BC, you want Alberta to come at you in Vancouver. By the way, the credit... For what I'm going to say next, it goes to the National Post, Tristan Hooper, for digging up this article in a uh, news article that he wrote about two years ago. Here's what he wrote. Quote, a 1983 Florida State University study identified two key ingredients behind a successful guerrilla campaign. Dense cities and broken mountainous terrain. End quote. And I'm going to repeat that. Dense cities and broken mountainous terrain. 
Doesn't that perfectly describe the road to Vancouver? Students of military history already know this to be true, but if we're gaming this thing out, it never hurts to have some academic backing to make us feel like we know what we're talking about. But luring the Alberta Free State forces towards the capital also brings them closer to your primary military assets at sea and also at 19 Wincomox at Esquimalt. This is a war that BC feels confident they can win, and the war planners on the left coast, they plan their strategy around this wishful thinking that Vancouver is the target. And early clashes between various militia units along the southern Crow's Nest Pass only serves to reinforce this belief that surely the attack must come towards Vancouver. And so in our war games, the bulk of the People's Republic forces are concentrated in this area. Now's a pretty good time to remember what exactly the goal of the Alberta Free State is. And it's not the capture of Vancouver on the Lower Mainland. In fact, I don't think Alberta would even want Vancouver in its new republic if it was served up on a platter. It's foreign and alien to Alberta. Different cultures entirely. Not a good fit. Far from being the opening salvos of a major operation, the clashes along the Crow's Nest Pass are mere feints. Meant to trick BC, and they work. The real prize for Alberta is the central coast of BC where they can run a pipeline to. And in keeping with this objective, the bulk of their units move towards this theater in the weeks leading up to the war. In our war game, the Free State forces mass in the north at Grand Prairie and on July 1st begin pushing west. Going for a northern strategy is going to make a lot of sense if you're Alberta, and you'll see why. Unlike in the south, the northern border, though rugged, is not mountainous, making it more difficult for BC to defend. As well, the northern border is furthest away from BC's center of power in Vancouver, making communication and supplies and logistics difficult for the People's Republic. And thirdly, what I would say is almost most important, is that this northern region of BC is highly sympathetic to this concept we call Wexit and Alberta independence. The Peace River region is as alien to downtown Vancouver as Alberta's High River or Fort McMurray. Because the peace country relies on oil and agriculture and resource extraction for its economy. This is a, a jurisdiction that has 40% of BC's farmland, and a traveler through the region could very well assume that they never left Alberta, because the culture is the same. We've even seen some of the biggest names and proponents of Wexit, and I'm talking about former Conservative House Leader Jay Hill, who hails from this region, say that this part of BC would join Alberta in a quest for independence. So in our war games, when the Albertan... Army units roll into Dawson Creek. They are greeted as liberators, and in fact, many people are going to join the Wexit cause. This sympathetic population is going to give Alberta a home court advantage, to use a sports analogy. The local BC military force in the area, the Rocky Mountain Rangers, are, instead of contesting the road, they're going to throw in their lot with the Free State which manages to capture the vitally strategic city of Prince George as night falls 
on July 1st. It's a lightning war. The next day, July 2nd, a flying column of Free State mechanized vehicles detaches itself from the main body at Prince George and begins racing towards Prince Rupert and Kitimat. It encounters little resistance at first, but the closer the men get to the coast, the more enemy fire they encounter. And infantry have to be called in to clear the way while repairs are made on the bridge over the Skeena River. Once a temporary structure is made, the flying column proceeds to raise the Free State flag over Prince Rupert and Kitimat. Back in Calgary, a joyous mood envelops the city at the news, for this occupied territory aligns with the proposed path of the Northern Gateway pipeline that the Liberal government denied permits to. Yet in Vancouver, there is now a sense of foreboding. The fall of Prince George is devastating to the People's Republic of BC, because if they maintain their positions close to the Alberta border, all the way from Jasper to the US border, then Alberta forces can race down to Kamloops and then cut them off from Vancouver and the supply lines in a wide flanking maneuver, very reminiscent of the historical Schieflin plan. This scenario would be fatal to the People's Republic of BC, and so the fall of Prince George is going to compel BC to pull back across the entire front, creating a new secondary defensive line that's anchored at Kamloops in the north, Vernon in the middle, and Trail in the south. And for BC, holding this new line is critical. Because as bad as the fall of Prince George is, the fall of Kamloops would be a mortal wound. Losing that city would open up a network of highways for Alberta to fan out on, and then nothing would be safe. But holding this line is going to give BC some breathing room, a little time to catch their breath from the sudden Alberta onslaught, which in the span of two days has essentially wrested half the province from Vancouver's control. And as this new line is solidified by hastily cobbled together batches of reinforcements from the lower mainland, units pulling back from this initial front lines on the border well, they begin limping back to the secondary line. And for the new recruits, it's a sorry sight because these men are beat up from the earlier clashes and skirmishing. Their low morale is evident and reinforced by a fighting withdrawal because as they begin pulling back, their free staters start pushing, hoping to turn a retreat into a rout. In the aftermath of the day's fighting, the border between BC and Alberta has been largely erased and the front lines are now eerily similar and closely aligned with the electoral map. Where the conservative blue meets the red, orange and green colors of the coalition in the interior of BC. Now we get into the final stage of Operation Klein and the Great Oil War. The new front has been stabilized, but something unexpected has happened. The People's Republic has been anticipating Alberta's next move, a continuation of the Lightning War, by reinforcing the Kamloops trail line. They're waiting for an attack which never comes. On the contrary, scouts report that far from gearing up for another offensive, their free staters are digging in at Prince George. Now this does cause a general sigh of relief in Vancouver because the capital is no longer in immediate danger. Yet at the same time, the most radical voices in the People's Republic begin demanding the generals do something to repel the invasion. There is, after all, an enemy force deep in BC territory, 
and something has to be done. Some action needs to occur for this. This situation won't do. And there is a case to be made that every day this static war continues is a day longer for the Albertans to entrench and fortify. In fact, they're already doing this. And so why not strike now, people say. There will be no better time. Now the earlier setbacks are going to lend credence to some emerging voices of moderation and pragmatism in BC who caution against a, an offensive and who urge perhaps negotiation. But as so often happens in war, it's the radicals who are going to carry the day and the argument. A new offensive, a new campaign is planned. A patriotic plan tinged with all the religious fervor that the environmentalist movement can muster to punish the free staters and get back control of the province. Now will be a time of revenge and retribution against Alberta and the peace country as well. And so this reinforced People's Republic of BC Army comprised of what remains of their reserve units and bolstered by environmentalist militias, they embark on a grand crusade, a decisive battle which in our war games takes the People's Republic Army back up the 97 highway towards Prince George. At first, the operation meets with success. People's Republic forces brush aside the screen of Alberta units along the way, recapturing places like Williams Lake and Quesnel. After two days of battle, the offensive takes them to the outskirts of Prince George, where disaster strikes. Remember that defensive plus one we talked about earlier? Well, Alberta has this bonus because there's only one highway leading north from Kamloops. Only one direction of attack. And as the BC forces come on in waves, they are broken apart by well-entrenched Alberta forces who've had time to study the ground and lay the traps that decimate the attackers. The fighting lasts into the night. Red tracer rounds lighting the darkness in a hypnotizing display more dazzling than any fireworks. Finally, the guns go quiet, and with the sunrise, the smoldering wreckage of the last 24 hours is clear for all to see. The People's Republic Offensive is over. As the broken People's Republic units retreat back to Kamloops, they are harried along the way by elements of the mechanized Alberta Light Horse, who inflict additional damage on the beaten foe. When news reaches Vancouver, murmurs of discontent emerge. Popular voices lament that downtown Vancouver hipsters who had never seen a gun, let alone handled one, should never have been thrown against the Albertans in combat. It's a sentiment that finds receptive ears in the fair trade coffee shops and the gluten-free cafes of the Lower Mainland and downtown Vancouver. Meanwhile, in the south, in the Vernon sector, a savage counterattack by People's Republic forces temporarily dislodges the Free State units from their positions before stalling in the wine country. And this attack serves to lift pressure on the Kamloops garrison as they organize for an orderly withdrawal further west, but it comes at a heavy cost of lives and materiel. In the wake of these twin offensives, the most zealous of the environmental militias, including some foreign volunteers from Washington State, vow to defend the city of Kamloops. But after two days of vicious house-to-house -house combat, 
the city falls, and with it, People's Republic hopes for a successful conclusion to the war. Morale collapses under the strain of defeat. With its oil reserves depleted, Vancouver commuters struggle to find fuel and commerce in the city grinds to a halt. Previously silenced voices from the political center begin now to confidently emerge. At an emergency meeting of the Victoria Legislature, the first amongst comrades is deposed, and a ceasefire resolution is proposed and debated. After less than a month of fighting, the echoes of gunfire in the mountains go silent. The lightning war in the West is over, when delegates from the People's Republic sign surrender documents with pens dipped in Alberta crude, as Free State commanders look on in traditional Stetson hats. Yet, in the moment of triumph, the Alberta Free State must prepare itself for an even greater threat. The juggernaut to the east. Thus concludes episode 5 of the One Soldier Canada History podcast. Dedicated this November 2019 to Don Cherry and you people who wear a poppy with pride. Lest we forget.